Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I suppose we should check in on the presidential campaign trail. There have been a, a few minor developments, nothing earth-shattering, but, you know, we should probably keep uh, abreast of developments there since we're what, six, six weeks, weeks from the Iowa caucus. It's going to be here before uh, you know it. Christmas, New Year's, so, and then boom, Iowa caucus. So so on the uh, Dem side, uh, <laughs> Dems are at it again, uh, saving our democracy from the people. This development in Florida, where Florida is not going to have, it would appear, a Democrat primary. Uh, much to the chagrin of one Dean Phillips, a sitting Democrat congressman from Minnesota, who, of course, announced his challenge, primary challenge to Biden back at the end of October. Well, they uh, are set to slate the candidates for president. And the only one that's going to the only one that they're slating is Joe Biden. So there's no need for a primary. I mean, at least the Soviets Went, had the decency to go through simulated elections, even though the result was a fait accompli. So Dean Phillips saying of, of this, Americans would expect the absence of democracy in Tehran, not Tallahassee. Our mission as Democrats is to defeat authoritarians, not become them. Maybe uh, Dean Phillips is having a bit of an awakening. But don't you just uh, enjoy the Democrats and the brazenness of it? Uh, th- th- that is really their approach. It's what... Um, Nick Cass uh, said in uh, my conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, uh, John Cass's brother, who is a career uh, foreign policy and uh, intelligence officer, uh, the uh, the attitude uh, of certain authoritarian regimes in the East uh, for the people in spite of the people which I love that phrase, and that's essentially what you have here. Hey, we're doing this for you in spite of what you want. Three Such one an interesting pitch. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line, which is open, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Marianne Williamson has the uh, same complaint, by the way, that the uh, ethereal Marianne Williamson is running again, too. And the point here is not, oh, well, you know, it's a it's a done deal. And it's not like Dean Phillips is going to beat Joe Biden. Well, yeah, but, you know, based on the sort of percentage of the vote RFK Jr. was getting before he decided to drop out of uh, the Democrat primary and run as an independent third party candidate. You know, there's a there's a 15 to maybe 20 percent protest vote. Obviously, a majority of Democrats, according to polling, think Biden is too old for the job. And here comes Dean Phillips, who, by the way, has a lot of his own money. I mean, this is a very wealthy guy. 
So I'm not saying he will, but if he wanted to, he has the ability to pour millions of dollars into his campaign if he wanted to really try to ratchet up the intensity of his challenge. But regardless, I mean, the distribution or the the gap between Biden and Dean Phillips, Dean Phillips just as a protest vote proxy, is not dissimilar to the spread between Trump and and DeSantis and or Nikki Haley in the early states at present. And uh, what would they be saying if Florida, well, it wouldn't be Florida, but DeSantis, but if any state moved to eliminate the primary and just have Trump as the oh only candidate uh, so we don't need a primary. We're only slating Trump for the presidential slot so they wouldn't, so we're not going to have any uh, any primary. What, what well, would the D.C. Media, press corps be saying about that? They'd be out of their minds. It'd be wall-to-wall coverage. I mean, Americans want a choice and they deserve a choice. And they just decided that he's going to be the only person on the ballot for the Democrats? Um, yeah, I deserve. I I, do something. Uh, well, he's, he's threatened to file a file suit. He's threatened to challenge, make a challenge at the convention. But but regardless, it's more just the indication of the party that runs around saving our democracy by trying to uh, imprison their political opponents, trying to illicitly knock Trump off the ballot in several states. Now they're going after their own people saying, no, no, no. It's just a wonderful thing to witness, uh, just uh, more evidence uh, in furtherance of our case. Now, on the other side, coming off of his uh, debate with Gavin Newsom, uh, DeSantis was back in Iowa working the ground game and having uh, his nine, uh, having an event in the 99th county he needed to to cover all 99 counties in Iowa. He was on Meet the Press uh, yesterday still sounding upbeat about his prospects to spring a surprise in Iowa. And ultimately, Republican voters are going to have the choice of Donald Trump, which I think would make the election a referendum on him uh, and a lot of the issues that he's dealing with, or me. uh, And that will be a referendum on Biden's failures, on all the issues in the country that are affecting people. And I'll be able to stand for a positive vision going forward. We have a much better chance uh, if we're doing it with me as the candidate. I'd also be able to serve two terms, and I'm more likely to actually get a lot of this stuff done. But those are the choices, realistically, for Republican voters. Um, I actually like that uh, angle a little bit better from DeSantis. He should uh, maybe focus in and accentuate that to the exclusion of his secondary and tertiary arguments. That's a better play than going after Trump directly. Yeah, the polls say that uh, Trump could be Biden. I could be Biden. Nikki Haley could be Biden. But the difference between me and Trump, if you don't trust Haley, which most Republicans don't, conservatives don't, the choice is, do you want the election to be a referendum on our candidate or their candidate, their failed president, our failed president, their failed candidate? Uh, th- yeah, I think that's a that's a better play than saying I can win and Trump can't because you don't really have the numbers to back that up. But the whole prospect of saying it's not that Trump can't win, but yeah, do we want it to be t- wall to wall about Trump or do we want it to be more wall to wall about Biden now? Uh, of course, I would hasten to add that it'll be about significantly be about whoever the Republican nominee is, because the D.C. press corps is uh, politically savvy enough and amoral enough to focus in on a DeSantis or even a Haley 
if they were the nominee and try to pick them apart on behalf of Biden, of course. But the intensity in terms of the referendum and in the public mind with a former president that is very polarizing, that that is a that that may be an argument that he he can get some voters to reflect upon. And um, maybe in the closing weeks of the race leading into Iowa, maybe he can close the gap and make it interesting. I don't think DeSantis has to win, but he certainly has to surprise in terms of how close he makes the race. And with the ground game in Iowa in a relatively small electorate, particularly the subset of Republican Republicans in Iowa who actually caucus, I mean, it's possible. I don't know. I When I was in Iowa, Dan, all I saw were Trump signs. But also when I turned on the TV, I mean, the you know local news are flooded with campaign ads. It was just DeSantis beaten up on Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley beaten up on DeSantis. Nobody was attacking Trump. Well, that is a problem that weird. each of them have as they're tra- all, they're both trying to jockey for second position to then train their yeah. focus on Trump, and that only serves Trump's interest. Now, uh, by contrast, while uh, Dean Phillips was decrying fascism in his uh, what. Well, I mean, he's declaring he's comparing the Democrats in Tallahassee to Tehran. Um, While he's doing that, uh, Trump had this to say in uh, Cedar Rapids over the weekend. Because the fact is, Americans don't like fascists. We don't like communists. We don't like tyrants. We don't like corrupt politicians like Joe Biden. Without question, this is the worst president, most corrupt. Yeah, no fascists, no tyrants and no Bidens. That's a bumper sticker. Uh, also, Trump rolled out a fun little ad. Oh, no. What? And this is the advantage that Trump has and maybe why, you know, you can understand him being a little prickly. He provided political support to DeSantis. He provided Nikki Haley with a job that increased her status. Uh, and, um, you know, he previously enjoyed the unyielding praise of governors like Iowa's Kim Reynolds, which he reminded everybody about in this new ad. On behalf of all Iowans, I want to say thank you. Thank you for cutting taxes for hardworking Iowans, for eliminating senseless regulations that stifled innovation and jobs. What I love about this president and this administration is it is an administration of action and outcomes, and the list is long. Lower taxes, lower unemployment, safer borders. For standing strong with Justice Kavanaugh and appointing conservative judges to the court. Our barbers, thank you. Iowans, thank you. And we are grateful. Promises made, promises kept. The Midwest has a partner in the White House with President Donald Trump. A leader, a fighter, a president who puts America and Americans first. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. I bet you did. I bet you approved that message. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, maybe that waters down Kim Reynolds' endorsement of DeSantis a bit. Bill and Glen Ellen. Yeah, I was wondering if you guys could tell us what is the absolute point of no return for Biden being the Democrat nominee? And what exactly would happen if, at that point, something happens to Biden? I mean, what is the, uh, the, the magic they have to do to get Newsom into the slot? Well, I mean, thanks for the call, Bill. You, you've got, uh, well, you've got, if something happened like God interceded, not that we wish that to happen, but, I mean, you know, through these contingencies, 
life is precarious. Uh, yeah, they have the ability. They have a convention. After the convention, if there were a health issue, they have the ability to appoint. I mean, the same as Republicans. But you know, all of this uh, imagining of machinations to somehow sideline Biden absent a health issue is just that imagining. George in Naperville. Yes, and with regard to Biden on the ballot, it's like that Greek restaurant in Saturday Night Live. No, no Coke, Pepsi. <laughs> All right, thanks, George. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So uh, last week at City Hall... Uh, Mark Carter and some other black residents of Chicago held a little impromptu press conference in which they uh, tried to send a message to the Democrat Socialist power structure in Chicago. Mark Carter uh, is a he's been around for a while. He's sort of a longtime advocate for. Uh, ex-offender support, support for ex-offenders and reintegrating them into the community. Um, Here's what, um, so here's uh, sort of the pertinent parts, at least from my perspective, of what you heard from Mark Carter and his allies. First, uh, a uh, black female resident of Chicago who spoke at uh, this thing that Carter organized. Of Chicago and any Republican candidate in the city of Chicago, now is your time because we are done with the Democratic Party. Wayne Johnson, Governor and has shown us what they think about the black community all over this country. And so we're standing here today to say, okay, if that's what it is, we win it. We don't have to support the Democratic Party. We don't have to continue to support people who are not going to support us. And the Democratic Party here in this city, in this state, and in this country is not supporting us. You got the Republicans on one side and the Democrats on the other side. Guess what? They're part of the same bird. That's right. So it doesn't matter anymore which party we go with. But I'll tell you this, I'd rather deal with the snake 
that's outfitting himself of the Republican Party than the snake that's covered up in the Democratic Party. That's right. We're not going to continue to stand for this. That's We're not going to continue to allow right. our state representatives, our congressmen, our aldermen, and our mayor yes. to let us know yes. that we don't matter. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, Mark Carter then took to the microphone and added this. How do you take a new group of people that have paid no taxes, can't vote, and you put them in front of the voters? I'm not going to pay them no taxes. And so we say this to you, Mayor, Governor, President. If you think that they're that powerful, that you have to acquiesce and answer to them over us, then you tell them to vote for you in these next elections. You tell them to support your Democratic National Convention. But we're going to show you how, how we feel about the Democratic National Convention. Turn it up. Thank you. If you think you're going to have a peaceful Democratic National Convention in the city of Chicago while our people are right. stay tuned. Right. Stay tuned. Really? Uh-oh. 1968 redux over migrant policy. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. I've been saying this for a while. I think this is the issue that may be turning uh, black Democratic voters into possibly Republicans. Because I also said, too, during that press conference that they wanted to meet with Republicans, Illinois Republicans. And I kind of chuckled. Yeah, go um, ahead and tr- try and find one. Yeah, find well, if you find one, let us know. Um, but also they wanted to meet with President Trump. I mean, if President Trump comes out and says, I am going to ship these people. I'm going to put them on planes and take them back to their prospective countries. Are you kidding me? He'll get the Hispanic vote in Chicago. He'll get the uh, he'll get the black vote in Chicago. I think mm. there's still parts. I mean, as as they're building Brighton Park, you know, as the sun's coming up here and they start, con- you know, finishing construction on Brighton Park, they're they're out there protesting continually. They mm-hmm. are upset. I think this this is this could be the they a number issue. the they numbers in the uh, dozens, hundreds, oh, well, thousands. Thousands, I mean, on and off, people <laughs> rotate in shifts. I mean, I know it's cold out and whatnot, but uh, even before the weather turned, mm, you know, I don't want to rain on the parade here. You, you want to encourage people uh, to break from their community's orthodoxy. I don't know why... I, you know, the whole identifying as the, the black community and the Latino community and all these communities still mystifies me. I don't identify it. I don't, uh, you know, think about uh, my place in the Irish Danish community. I mean, it's just I it's just but th- this is the identitarian trap that that most people can't break out of, particularly if you're coming from the left. You just can't break out of the identitarian trap, which is when you, why you, when you're not talking about. Chicago taxpayers, Chicago residents, uh, the law-abiding Chicago residents, regardless of color, uh, and the, their interests. I, I just, I just not persuaded that there's a real shift coming. I mean, this is very much to me like what we talked about last week. That co-founder of Black Lives Matter in Rhode Island, who uh, you know has come out right. for Trump basically because of the immigration policy as well. So I, I, I want to believe there's a change happening. I've seen this not only before, but for a long time. I mean, and, and I give black residents of Chicago and other metropolitan areas where there is one party rule and states like Illinois, where there's one party rule for that matter. And they break from 
the orthodoxy within their neighborhoods and say, you know, I'm I'm at, at minimum I'm abandoning the Democrat Party. And then I'm just going to be a free agent and we'll make a decision candidate by candidate. I give them a lot of credit because they take a lot of heat. So I'm not dismissing them. And I appreciate uh, them speaking truth to power, to borrow a favorite phrase. But do I think it uh, it represents some sort of paradigm change afoot? I I don't. Got a text message. Dan and Amy, the Democrats are going to pay those agitators off before the convention gets here. Well, and here's the response from Robert Peters. Robert Peters is a state senator. Robert Peters is the chairman of the Black Caucus in the state Senate. Robert Peters replaced Kwame Raul, who replaced Barack Obama, representing you know the Hyde Park area. Right. He wants to be Barack. Uh, Chicago must remain a sanctuary city because that's who we are. What, are we not going to be a welcoming city? Could you imagine Remember that lady? Uh, if we were not considered a welcoming city? Could you imagine the shame? Um, uh, no one, let me, just a couple of riffs from this op-ed. Mm-hmm. Let me start, this is Senator Robert Peter. So, again, here's, so here's the chairman of the Black Caucus in the state, state Senate. Hmm. Let me start by saying something other politicians won't say. No one knows what to do in the face of the current migrant crisis. We're making good progress thanks to city and state funding commitments, but we need federal assistance. Short of that, the crisis will continue. However, uh, there is a cohort of strange bedfellows in the city council proposing a different tack, repealing Chicago's welcoming city ordinance, also known as our sanctuary city ordinance. The welcoming city ordinance is the product of Mayor Hill Washington's legacy and has nothing to do with asylum seekers. It specifically pertains to the right of the undocumented residents at right of undocumented residents, and protection from being hunted by ICE. Hunted. Like the police hunt somebody who committed a crime? Is that how we re- re- uh, refer to it? I mean, yeah, they do manhunt for this or that. But, I mean, you know, this is intended to connote unfairness, right? You're being right. hunted like an animal. No, you have law enforcement officers trying to enforce the law. I thought that's what we wanted. Anyway, being a sanctuary city is a demonstration of Chicago's principles. We welcome immigrants and respect their humanity. All the false equivalences here. And, of course, the the classic, because this guy is not a, a particularly interesting thinker, it's just the classic riff on this stuff. It's the classic disingenuous demagoguery, as if there's any other kind, uh, of not distinguishing between legal and illegal and ascribing to your opponent Uh, a racist disposition, even though most of your opponents would say, I'm for legal immigration. I'm fine with the rich diversity of people and their backgrounds that comprise Chicago, but there's a process. You know, it's, it's very interesting for Senator Peters, the processes that you adhere to under color of law, and then the process you dismiss when the law is inconvenient to your political ideology. That could be the conversation if we had an opposition party in the state, but we don't. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. And and just the last line of this is just a perfect illustration, a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about, the disingenuousness of the position of these open borders uh, pro-lawlessness 
politicians. Chicago and Illinois sit at the crossroads of America, writes Senator Peters. We're the land of Lincoln and Barack Hussein Obama, two men who weren't born in our state but came here to change the world. That's what we should be displaying to the world next year. So um, Abraham Lincoln came from Kentucky and Barack Obama came from Hawaii. Um, that, do you, you understand the distinction? But that this is, again, this is how craven and dishonest these individuals are. But, but they feel completely comfortable exhibiting those traits, don't they? And what does that say about the political environment? What does that say about their fear that some revolt is brewing, particularly in their backyard with their relied upon constituents? I don't know. I'm a skeptic. But don't you think the black voters are sick and tired of being taken for granted by no. Democrats? No, they're I not don't. sick. This isn't enough. I think watching I think, their tax dollars go to help people when they want those tax dollars themselves. I think a percentage of them are. You know, not, it's not enough to move the needle. That's what I think. Okay. Ron, Southside. Morning, Dan. Dan, bingo. You hit it right. You hit it right on the head. It's just slight discomfort right now. That's all you're hearing. No, it's not going to move the needle at all. I, I, I've seen this. Look here. I, you know, I'm 66 years old. I've, I've seen this crap with the Democrat Party, and you would get a few. I, I, you know, they us may be sincere. You know, and people are agitated. But to really think it's going to be, um, I, I've seen too many issues. Look at you. Look, look at uh, the black people's children are not being educated. Look at the crime. Yeah. So yeah. this is what just uh, so all of a sudden, oops, okay, this is it. You know, you when I was young, <laughs> look, I used to see uh, three car Monty on the bus, pee on the cup. <laughs> so all I'm saying, guy, I can't be fooled. So. Uh, I, you know, you're right, Amy, and I would like to feel that way. And I listen, and I, you know, and I was talk radio like and with this, and I hear the sentiment. But if if I was, and first of all, because all I can say, when black people came out and voted for for, for Brandon Johnson, that let me know where they where their thinking is. So Dan, I, I agree with you 100. percent It's not gonna make a difference at all you all have a great day thanks for the call ron the only thing i would say in defense of um the uh pros- the, the the optimism you know a defense of amy's optimism for example is it's up. hard it's, it's hard to know what is possible when the environment isn't providing a landing spot for disaffected black democrats so um, I'm just speaking about Chicago because different states and big cities are different in this respect, like the existence of a larger Republican Party in their state and efforts being made at the city level. But when there's a complete absence of an alternative um, or the alternative represents sort of the men and women of always that have been uh, measured and found wanting like Paul Vallis, then you're not really encouraging 
those that may be questioning to make a different decision. So there is that. You know, in the absence of alternative, people throw up their hands and say, there's nothing I can do. Uh, I'm not in control of this thing. These are the people in charge. There's no prospect that that's going to change, so I better fall in line. Uh, Michael, Southside. Good morning, Dan. morning, Amy. Thank you both for taking my call. Uh, there's a lot of smoke out there, but there's really not a lot of fire. Uh, apart from a few uh, black aldermen, you don't really see any prominent black leaders or black or black organizations um, complaining about the migrants. And the other thing worth mentioning too, is that the, um, you know, once contracts start getting passed out uh, related to uh, dealing with the migrants, you, you got to figure some of that money is going to flow into uh, black hands. And that's going to uh, keep you, that's more likely to keep uh, black, uh, leaders and uh, black organizations quiet so yeah no, lots of smoke no thanks fire. for the thanks for the call michael yeah i mean um it, it's not so much i would expect black organizations you know these sort of officially licensed uh, subsidiaries of the democrat party run by uh uh bl- bl- you know black nonprofit leaders or religious leaders or political leaders or former political leaders I, you don't expect them they're they're completely aligned so they're not going to flip. But the question is, is there some revolt by the hoi polloi below the fold that we're not properly calibrating? And I don't think there is. Tina and Joliet. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, I have a little bit different perspective. Um, my buddy Devin Jones is with the Southside GOP black guy. He's been door knocking like crazy. And he called me yesterday and said, I think what we're hearing about the black community being ready to leave the Democratic Party is real. He said, I have never had so many people willing to sign my petition. And he's a Republican. He's a proud conservative. And um, he said it's real. He doesn't. He has always said what you guys just said, though. The community isn't presented with an alternative to the Democratic Party. Where are the Republicans? They're not showing up in the neighborhoods. And uh, the folks that live there at Thanksgiving, they know the Democrats are passing out turkeys at, you know, during Christmas. They're getting winter coats. There, there's always a face and a presence from the Democratic Party in the community. We've got to do a better job as conservatives reaching out and being there, being in our neighborhoods and in our communities. And you know, folks, they want change. I truly believe that. Thanks for the call, Tina. The only thing is... Um... You have to believe that there's some organization or organizations that have the capacity to uh, incorporate uh, those who want to come over and support them, maybe level them up to uh, candidates for office and finance them. So that infrastructure just doesn't exist. So it's not just like, you know, Tina's a good conservative and she's working with Devin and they're trying to advance the flag. But then so you got to have candidates and you got to have resources and you got to have the ability to run effective campaigns. Good candidates, by the way. And uh, yeah. David St. Charles. 
Hi, Dan. Thank you for taking my call. I'd like to chime in with the woman that just called, and and Devin is doing a lot of hard work with uh, Latasha Fields, who was um, mm-hmm. running yeah, for Senate governor with Max Solomon. So um, the Chicago GOP, you know, Brian and Evan Castle and Steve Bolton are doing a lot to, to trying to engage in uh, community engagement. I'm out in Kane County. The Kane County GOP is getting subcommittees together for uh, communications, community engagement, and we are working. The problem is, and we're seeing the needle. I, I wanted to talk about the needle being moved. Trump got 8% of the black vote in 2016, and then in 2020, was 13. Now there are a lot of black organizations like Blacks for Trump, and there's also Latinos for Trump. Yeah. You see a lot of this organizing in social media. David, if, we got to go. We got to go. Thanks for the call. Kane County can't even hold their Republican legislators like mm-hmm. Keith Wheeler. So again, I'm, I, you know, I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm, I appreciate what people are doing, but I can't say that I'm hopeful. Actually, listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM five sixty mobile app. Download it today at five sixty theanswer dot com slash mobile. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at signaturebank.bank. That's signaturebank.bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, signaturebank.bank. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, as we talked about a bit last week, we have uh, the COP28 conference going on in Dubai, and uh, the uh, United Arab Emirates must be just really getting a chuckle out of uh, all of these uh, big wigs from the West that flew in to talk about the climate apocalypse while they're while they announced this past spring that they're doing a record expansion of their oil and gas industries in in uae uh-huh. but That's anyway the, uh the, our, i mean the hypocrisy is hysterical but yeah okay uh, our greens are uh john Kerry. why the long face because coal has still not been banned and uh, it has to happen immediately we ought to be transitioning out of coal. There shouldn't be any more coal-fired power plants permitted anywhere in the world. That's how you can do something for health. President and the reality is that we're not doing it. So, um, you know, the measure here is, is really uh, sounding the alarm bell. I find myself getting more and more militant because I do not understand how adults who are in position of responsibility can be avoiding responsibility for taking away those things that are killing people on a daily basis. 
and and the reality is that um, the climate crisis and the health crisis are one and the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just a couple of points here on the you know, just sort of commonsensical points. Not that there's much interest in common sense in this discussion, at least from uh, these uh, neo luddites like John Kerry. Thirty-six percent of all global electricity is comes from coal. Yeah, it's twenty percent of U.S. energy is coal uh, that comes from coal. Eighty mm-hmm. percent of U.S. energy comes from fossil fuels. You wouldn't know it the way they talk about alternative energy. A lot of people, you, you I, it'd be interesting to survey what percentage of uh, American energy, you know, the energy that's needed to power a, a twenty-five trillion dollar economy. What, what percentage of that comes from renewables and alternative energy? I'm sure people would be off by an exponent or uh, with respect to that because there's just so much ink dedicated to cheerleading alternative energy and people probably think yeah windmills and uh, and electric batteries and so forth are solar panels man the, solar panels are they're the way everywhere. of the fu- switchgrass right they're the <laughs> way of the future 20% of us energy is still so it's just a simple question okay how, what's going to replace that What's going to replace that capacity that we need and that we need to be reliable? And they don't have any answer to that question. That's sort of, sort of a big question, just a basic question. You don't need to be a climatologist. You don't need to be an energy industry expert. This is what the distribution is in terms of where U.S. energy comes from and global energy, since we're all global citizens. You may want to take notice of the impact that uh, uh, coal has on the world in terms of being a, a source of energy. And so just tell me how you want to replace it and what that process looks like. But they don't have answers. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636 is our text line. And also, if we eliminate all the coal plants and, you know, that that whole industry, we'd have about, what, 100,000 people out of work? Where are they going to go? You want them to work on the wind farms and the solar panel farms? Well, I yeah, popping but, up everywhere. They don't have answers. They have arbitrary deadlines. They have press releases. They have pronouncements about like John Kerry offered. I, I mean, this was the uh, exchange uh, earlier this year between Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana. And David Turk, who is the deputy uh, energy secretary uh-huh. for the big guy, Mr. Ten Percent, the Biden administration, and John Kennedy had a simple question, and you couldn't get an answer because they don't have any answers. Percent of global emissions. Yeah, but if right you could now, answer my question, if we spend fifty trillion dollars to become carbon neutral in the United States of America by two thousand and fifty. You're the Deputy Secretary of Energy. Give me your estimate of how much that is going to reduce world temperatures. So, so first of all, it's a net cost. Um, it's what uh, benefits we're having from getting our act together and reducing all of those climate benefits. We're seeing. Let me ask again. Maybe I'm being. Right now. Maybe I'm not being clear. If we spent 50 trillion dollars to become carbon neutral by 2050 in the United States of America, how? 
how much is that going to reduce world temperatures? This is a global problem. So we need to reduce our emissions and we need to do everything we can. How much, if we do our part, countries. is it going to reduce so world we're temperatures? So we're 13 percent of global emissions. You don't right know, now. do you? You don't know, do you? You can do the math. We need to. You don't know, do you, Mr. Secretary? So we're 13 percent of if global If you know, emissions. why won't if you we tell went, me? If we went to zero, that would be 13 percent. You don't know, do you? You just want us to spend $50 trillion dollars. And you don't have the slightest idea whether it's going to reduce world temperatures. Now, I'm all for carbon neutrality, but you're the deputy secretary of the Department of Energy, and you're advocating we spend trillions of dollars to seek carbon neutrality, and you can't, and this isn't your money or my money, it's taxpayer money, and you can't tell me how much it's going to lower world temperatures? There or you won't tell me? You know, but you won't? In my heart of hearts, there is no way the world gets its act together on climate change unless the U.S. leads. Tell me how much it's the going US to reduce. You, ca you can't tell me. Either that or you won't. The U.S. needs to lead in what direction? Uh, carbon neutrality. I know, but for to what end? Where are we going? They don't know. But it's not politics. It's not ideology. It's all politics and ideology. And the reason they can't tell you in part about with the impact by 2050 or 2100 it's because they don't know what they don't really know what global temperatures are going to be where the trend lines are the modeling that's been done over the course of the last 40 years that has been used speciously to whip up this frenzy has been wrong but john Kerry tells you no no this is just chemistry and biology and physics. Uh huh. But let me just tell you bluntly, when the best scientists in the world unanimously are telling us as leaders in our countries that we are on the brink of tipping points from which you cannot come back, irreversible, that the permafrost or the Barents Sea ice or the, or the coral reefs, or most importantly, the Arctic and the Antarctic may be at tipping point or beyond. Last summer, it was 70 degrees Fahrenheit above normal in the Arctic. It was 100 degrees Fahrenheit above normal in the Antarctic. And a massive component of ice that had been lodged in the mud because it was so heavy, it was stuck there, has now melted sufficiently that it's risen and moving across the southern ocean towards Georgia Island, and it will melt and accelerate the sea level rise of the planet. So this year, we just learned yesterday, it was confirmed, it's not when we learned it, was the hottest year in history, human history, that we measured. But that's true now of every year, almost, for the last 30 almost. years. Decades, three years, three decades ago was the third now warmest. The second decade was the second warmest, and this last decade, the warmest in history. So I'm not going to say more about it, except to say that if we can't hear Mother Nature and can't judge with our own eyes what the science is telling us, this is not about politics, there's no ideology, there's no pejorative against any one business or any approach. There is simply mathematics and physics and some chemistry and biology. None of that's true. None of what he said is true. 
Uh, starting with the unanimity among the so-called scientists, you mean the, the selected scientists that come together to serve as the backdrop of a John Kerry speech. It's sort of like when Biden invokes, you know, 15 Nobel laureates who endorse his latest uh, industrial policy. That, that, that's that, that's that's not unanimity. Um, I, I would encourage people. I mean, we've had her on the show before, but I just did a, a long interview with Judith Curry, who was the former head of climate and atmospheric sciences at Georgia Tech and was once uh, like a celebrated uh, uh, figure in the this uh, John Kerry uh, eschatological climate movement and uh, then fell out of favor because she actually is a scientist. Um, we've probably heard a story before, at least you've heard a part of it on this show before, but um, at my counterculture podcast, a full hour where Judith Curry goes through so many of the specious claims made by hucksters like John Kerry and Al Gore and all and Greta Thunberg and all the other celebrities that are uh, pumping real noxious gases into our political environment, you know, what uh, emanates from the orifice in the middle of their heads. This is all politics and all ideology. This is not to say we should be uh, blithely indifferent to being good stewards of our planet and the environment and the animals and the air and the water. Nobody, another false equivalence, just like we have when it comes to immigration. Uh, if you're not for open borders, then you hate immigrants. You hate black and brown people from other countries. Ridiculous. If you're not for uh, trying to, uh, well, if you're not for degrowth, if you're not for deindustrialization of the industrialized world, then you're a climate denier and you're indifferent to clean air and clean water and you're not interested in saving lives. I mean, it's always these false arguments that are propagated by these uh, central planners with designs on global control of people's lives. Right. And they're not meteorologists. They're not climatologists. They've had no study in this area. Do you remember what he said back in 2009 that the Arctic's going to be ice free by 2013? You have sea ice, which is melting at a rate that the Arctic Ocean now increasingly is exposed. In five years, scientists predict we will have the first ice free uh -huh. Arctic summer. That exposes more ocean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's he just goes on and on, but that's from 2009. Oh, right. And there's a million of these predictions from the John Kerry's and the Al Gore's of the world that were all just completely evidence-free hysterics. Yeah, what was Al Gore's oh, where he oh, he got the kids all riled up? He, here's, here's what you actually are dealing with. I mean, this is, this is at least honest. This is from a conference uh, at the EU earlier this year. We played it before, but let's revisit it so we remind ourselves exactly what we're dealing with. Anuna de Weaver van der Heden, who's a Belgian climate activist, addressing the Beyond Growth 2023 conference. This is before, you know, the policy leaders of the European Union countries. And listen to what she says and listen to the audience reaction. Infinite growth on finite resources is not only a myth, but it's extractivist and ruthlessly oppressive by design. So when talking about growth and defending growth, there is a very important first question that we need to ask ourselves. 
Who are we growing this economy for? And what stories do we use to justify it? We have to acknowledge what lays below our growth. White supremacy, colonialism and imperialism. White supremacy justifies a global system of exploitation and extractivism. Colonialism lays at the foundations of the European economy, institutions, corporate value chains, trade deals, investment agreements and geopolitical structures of wealth accumulation, which means that there is no degrowth without decolonization. No politics there. We need to take these conversations outside of these rooms and make sure that for all of the hundreds of fossil fuel lobbyists demanding growth, there are thousands of us demanding degrowth. We need to redistribute wealth, cancel climate debt, implement a universal basic income, massively invest in loss and damage funds, degrow the economy in high-income countries, increase universal public services, reduce working time, dematerialize, and reprioritize what it means to live a human life. What do we want? The dark ages. When do we want it? As soon as possible. I mean, degrow the economy. Is, is, that, is that what you heard from her, climate activists? Is that that's just more chemistry and physics and biology and math? I mean, come on. Robert in Bloomingdale, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, hi, guys. It's all manipulation. These guys, you're not, not going to get a straight answer out of these people because that's all it is. And John Kerry, in my opinion, would be nothing but a four-flushing lobbyist if it wasn't for his wife from the ketchup uh, air to the ketchup room. <laughs> yeah, she gives right. him a ride on his jet. Thanks for the call, Robert. Yeah. By the way, the uh, I saw that some of the jets were grounded in Munich oh, because of a great? snowstorm. I loved it. Um, and and, and they'll, again, they'll, they'll blame that on climate change. We couldn't get to the climate change conference because there's snow in December. Well, yeah, there normally is snow in December. Please. One more flashback here, because uh, I just want to get to Carrie, because this is the one of the favorite lines uh, that's occurrent from this set. These uh, flim flammers trying to sell you end days. Hottest temperature on record, hottest mm-hmm. gear on record, so on and so forth. Boiling oceans. They, they still are trying. They still are operating off the famous, infamous Michael Mann hockey stick. The spike in temperatures, the end of the, allegedly at the end of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And it's been completely debunked. They cooked, pun intended, they cooked the data by not providing the full data. They cherry picked it and isolated to show a spike without showing the resultant decline to suggest that we don't really know exactly what the trajectory is and we certainly don't know even if uh you do see a slight rise in temperatures and that sustains all, all the causes because you know uh the climate is a complicated area of study and there are many variables not just your gas guzzling car richard Mueller is a physicist at berkeley and he went through this in his class Listen to what he said. He's a physicist. John Kerry's a political hack and right and a, a kept man, thanks to the ketchup bottle, as Robert from Bloomingdale said. 
and Mueller's an actual physicist at Berkeley. Mike, who's Michael Mann, said, hey, trick just means mathematical trick. That's all. Now, and my response is, I'm not worried about the word trick. I'm worried about the decline. What do you mean, hide the decline? Let me show you this. Now we have the data. Now it's been released. And this is what it is. That's the raw data as any Berkeley scientist would have published it. He would have said, okay, we've had the medieval ice age, and now we have global warming. And there's some disagreement, but hey, there's disagreement all over the place. And that just shows the technique isn't completely uh, reliable. What they did is they took the data from 1961 on, from this peak, and erased it. What was their justification for erasing it? The fact that it went down. And we know the temperature's going up. Therefore, it was unreliable. Is this unreliable? No. How do we know? Well, we don't know, but, you know, <laughs> we, this know. is probably some human effect. This, their, their justification would not have survived peer review in any journal that I'm willing to publish in. But they had it well hidden, and they erased that, and they replaced it with temperature going up. And let me show you how cleverly this was done. They, it, it, you get back to this plot. There it is. Uh, they added the same temperature data to three different plots, giving you the illusion that there are three different sets going up. Um, and they smoothed it. This temperature changes smoothly. If they hadn't smoothed it, you might have noticed, oh, wait a minute, what's the change going on right there? Why is it abruptly different? But you don't notice that because it's smooth. But smoothing is legitimate in their minds because the temperature change is not discontinuous. So that's what they did. And what is the result in my mind? Quite frankly, as a scientist, I now have a list of people whose papers I won't read anymore. You're not allowed to do this in science. This is not up to our standards. I get infuriated with colleagues of mine who say, well, you know, it's a human field. You make mistakes. And then I show them this. And they say, uh, no, that's not acceptable. Right. It wasn't a mistake. It was fraud. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. No child mutilation, no soup for you. That's the position of the Biden administration. This uh, fight started uh, a year and a half ago when uh, the uh, USDA changed, announced it was changing its long-standing interpretation of Title IX that governs discrimination protections in education to include discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So, if the school doesn't comply with the gender identity politics of the regime, then no school lunch funding for that school. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. This is the next iteration. I mean, it was telegraphed, of course, This is, but this is the next iteration of the fight over pushing the LGBTQ2S++, but mainly the T, agenda in K-12 through education. Attach funding to it. Prohibit teams who don't... Uh, participate in it from participating 
in athletics and athletic competitions altogether. The next iteration. This is a, a fight. Republicans uh, in the Senate tried to uh, overturn this Department of Agriculture interpretation of Title IX, but it didn't happen. They don't have the numbers. Senator Roger Marshall, Republican from Kansas, don't be fooled here. The Biden administration is the only player in this policy fight that is taking away lunches from children. There is real-world evidence the USDA's policy has already taken away school lunch funding from low-income children. Weaponizing school lunch money in pursuit of their radical agenda and putting students in the crosshairs is unconscionable, and we will not stand for it. Well, we'll see. I mean, they're going to there'll be litigation on this. Maybe it makes its way to the Supreme Court, but this is the approach that's being taken. It's like another example of conform or die. I mean, there's people that need those lunches. There's other students that don't, but that is just uh, some big government stuff going on there. Well, I mean, it's um, unsurprising, number one. And also, frankly, unfortunately, how many government schools will actually be affected? How many government schools aren't already folded in? That's the real sad commentary. This probably doesn't get much press in certainly big metropolitan areas because what schools are not folded into this already? The teachers, the administrators, some of the parents at least, school board members. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, you know, it's just, uh, no, let's just go along, get along. Okay. Um, interesting uh, data out of Oregon. The uh, per a uh, Oregon Department of Education report that was released the end of last week, its annual report effectively for the state, the number of non-binary identifying students increased 57 percent. What? Yeah, 57 percent increase. Nearly 3,000 K through 12 students in Oregon now have some gender identity other than the you know the sex that they were born as well that's because their educators were pushing that narrative don't you think fourth year in a row that uh, you've seen an increase in non-binary still represents a fraction of the students in Oregon government schools but keeps going up 3,000 that's a lot of potential dudes playing women's sports right and again the social contagion aspect of this which is obvious and frankly there's research that's been muted but research that suggests exactly that particularly among girls interestingly this is the research that was done at brown university and um you're just gonna hope that uh your kids get out before they're impacted or they're already out so you're not impacted but of course let's try to remember (laughs) What happens on campus, K through 12 and college, doesn't stay on campus. How many examples do we have to live through before that starts to register? And what's the impact of that? Just that aspect of it? Oh, well, by the way, the other, the imposition I mentioned. Um, so no school lunch funding for the few government schools that would dare to cross the regime. And also this, now this is a Christian school, but this is what the state does. Uh, A Christian school in Vermont that forfeited a game 
girls basketball game, girls basketball team. They forfeited a state tournament game in protest of having to play against a six-one uh, dude pretending to be a girl on the team that they were going to play, who's been dominating girls basketball. They forfeited the game, and so the governing body for uh, high school sports in Vermont has prohibited that school from participating in future tournaments. So there you go. Uh, another conform or die, yeah. Well, that's not fair. Oh, fairness. Fair. Did There's... I even say that? <laughs> what's, not fa- what's not fair is, uh, you know, not uh, being tolerant and welcoming and so on and so forth. Uh, and you know, they and then could gr- get injured playing a six-one dude. I mean, he could elbow them in the face, break a nose, give them a concussion. And when you get a concussion, it's it may take a long time to come back from that. This just happened again in a volleyball game. California right. fathers come forward. A seventeen-year-old daughter suffered a serious concussion during mm-hmm. a high school volleyball game, in which the opposing team had a boy pretending to be a girl competing alongside women. She had to sit out her senior year. My daughter has been involved in volleyball since she was in fourth grade. Said dad, she was always been the she's always been the kid with the eye in the prize. When she first started asking about playing volleyball, she began practicing in the backyard for hours at a time. She'd hit the ball uh, on the sloped roof. Eventually, she was able to be a team captain at her school. And then they played uh, this uh, team, Half Moon Bay, uh, from a distance. Said says dad, it seemed like a boy dressed in a girl's volleyball uniform. Yeah. Because it was, Dad. Yeah. I told my wife it was not fair. What's fairness have to do with it? I felt frustrated. I was now supporting someone's gender confusion. To boot, they were now playing against my daughter and her teammates. And uh, then it happened. He didn't even see it. Did you see that? She was hit by that boy. I had missed the actual hit but felt the weight of everyone staring at me, including the opposing team. Um, And... um, after the game, he said, a few parents voiced their displeasure with the incident. With all this cancel culture crap, I was walking in eggshells, not wanting to add more fuel to this fire. I totally felt alone, like this was a bad dream. My daughter knew how angry I was, but the drive the drive was telling, uh, was telling as my daughter asked me not to make a big deal of it, but to me it was already a big deal. She was playing for fun. It was her final year doing it. She felt robbed. I felt deflated and powerless. There's our culture. And the same thing happened in 2022 in North Carolina when the student was hit in the face. An outside hitter was a man. I hit the ball about 50 miles per hour or faster. Hit her. She suffered severe head and neck injury and still has concussion symptoms. And she still has problems with her vision. Well, and uh, it's only going to increase those incidents. But I know, again, I mean, you're going to have to break a few eggs to be... Tolerant to uh, transform gender to properly be respectful of our identitarian political culture, right? I love what the dad said. He said, don't get me wrong. I have empathy for the boy. I don't know what it feels like for someone to be born a male and not identify with that. Life must be difficult. But at some point, does someone's gender dysphoria cross the empathy boundary? Uh, I, I go back to our friend Rich Mindina Head Park's question. What, what do they want? When's this going to stop? I don't know. When's it going to stop? We're not all spectators here. 
None of us are, or should be. When's it going to stop? I don't, what are you going to do about it? Very simple, that uh, the question that was asked by that uh, trans cyclist uh, and, and advocate uh, on The Daily Show. It's a real simple question. You either believe a man pretending to be a woman is a woman or you don't. I, I totally agree with her. You either do or you don't. Joe in Naperville. Yeah, you know, you guys are missing the big picture on this lunch thing. Why is the government so involved in feeding these kids to begin with? Why isn't the person or the uh, parent's responsibility? This is ridiculous. If they could afford an iPhone, they could afford a peanut butter sandwich for their kid. Okay, Joe. Roger, Southside. Hi, Dan, Amy. Uh, you know, until the, it's unfortunate with all these girls, athletes, whether they be high school or college level, the parents have to pull the kids out or just say, you know what, we're, we're leaving the school now. It, Thanks for the call, yeah, Roger. But when you leave the school, you go to another school and the same thing's happening there. Well, you leave the school and you go to another school. You go to Vermont Christian and then you forfeit a game because you don't want your girls to play against a 6-1 dude who's dominating girls basketball. And then they don't let you play in the tournament anymore. How could they disqualify? I mean, forever? They can't play? Or just one year suspended? They shouldn't even be suspended at all. They have freedom of choice, freedom of expression. Is, and they collectively as a team decided not to play against them, and they should not be penalized for that. The point here is simple. I, I don't know uh, why so many people fail to appreciate this. Just because you retreat doesn't mean they won't chase you. If we just give in here, if we just retreat here, well, in our culture right now, you have so many sensible people that are retreating here just so they can retreat at the next place they stop. And they think that somehow at some point they're going to stop getting chased. I don't think those individuals understand the nature of what they're dealing with and who they're dealing with. It should start registering. Matt in Oak Lawn. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, this dad's a sissy. He's got can't stand up for his own kid. He's, you know, walking on eggshells about some ridiculous situation. He involves his own child. He's, he's a wimp. But uh, if you couldn't, if I was coaching, and I, I'll never coach a high school team, I coach, I'll coach grammar school teams. If they pulled, put a kid out, I would pull my girls. Fine. If they did that, and said, oh, well, you can't be in the tournament, whatever it may be, then, then I'm going to get my Anthony Mason, who's in the boys' class, and say, you know what? When we play this team, you're on the bench. In the minute that kid goes in the game, you go in the game. And you save right. their coach. Every time that kid goes on the field, that dude goes in. So just get over with right now, and let's knock off the BS and let these girls play. Thanks. For, yeah, now we're, that's what we're going to start having. I mean, that's really interesting, actually. We're going to start having male enforcers on girls' teams. Right, so you put in your Oakley and I put in my Anthony Mason. <laughs> and they go at it. Problem is, those two are going at it. There's a bunch of other girls still on the court that are in you know, in harm's way. But, I mean, I appreciate the absurdity of where we're going. Right. I mean, the bottom... I'll, I'll, I'm going to respond with you, to your enforcer with my enforcer. The bottom line you... is they're taking the spot away from a woman or a young lady, teenager, whatever. Sean and Darian. Yeah, I mean, 
simply you have to get other parents involved, because I have a daughter in seventh grade volleyball, and go there, and I would be their worst nightmare. And I, you'd probably be reading about me on the news or seeing me on the news because I wouldn't stop. I mean, it ain't going to happen. There's not going to be a boy in my, uh, in my daughter's locker room, and he's not going to be on the team. That's simple. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sean. Jordan Antioch. Good to hear from the dads here. Hey, Good morning. Uh, you know, we need to – I don't, obviously, and I teach my son not to, but for those of, that, that turn away from it, we need to start taking the language back, and we need to start just standing our ground morally and just sensibly. When, when people are talking about tra- – you're not trans, you're gay. You're not trans, you're a lesbian. The problem is, and my wife and I were discussing this, here's how this started. These are people who are ashamed because they know they're ashamed to admit that they're gay or they have parents that don't want to say they have a gay son or a lesbian daughter. So it's easier to try to convince everybody that you're a man wanting to have sex with a woman. It's just, it is what it oh, is. Or, or, it's, or, it's, or, it's none, or it's none of the above, as we've seen, or it's none of the above and you're just doing something that's well, fashionable. That's the social contagion right. piece of and it. That's the thing. And, and that started, and now people want to do it because it's popular. Right up until the point where the rubber hits the road, and now you've, you've committed to this, and now somebody says, well, okay, you're this, but you want to have sex with this. Well, that's gay. Well, I'm not gay. I'm trans. Well, which one is it? And if you're in the sport, stand your ground. You're not trans. You're a cheater. You suck when you're a guy or you suck when you're a girl, and you're looking for the advent, advantageous nature of, of changing. You're, you're a cheater. Just people need to stop running from this. People need to stop turning away and and. and, and and, and bowing down and caving to this because you're afraid you're going to hurt somebody's feelings or whatever, and just stand your ground because you're defending your kids. You're defending your kids as an adult and a kid. You're defending their the rest of their lives. Thanks so, for the call, Jordan. Appreciate it. Well, um, as I said before, uh, men without chess, and that specifically goes for the dads here, men without chess leave girls with concussions and without teeth, as we saw in that field hockey incident as well. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer. On AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So on Friday, Hamas fired rockets at Israel in violation of the pause. They also failed to produce the remaining female hostages to trade for more time and uh, prisoners. And so the war is back on. And in response to that, and boy, you know, who could uh, have seen that... uh, a terrorist organization responsible for the greatest mass killing of Jews since the Holocaust would act in less than good faith. 105 hostages were freed, 137 remain by last count. Including Americans, one female that we know of, and then Hirsch Goldberg, he's still being held hostage. And the response from Mr. 10%, the big guy, via his uh, animatronic Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is to put Israel on a quote-unquote short leash. The response from the big guy via, via uh, 
his Veep, is to focus on revitalizing the Palestinian Authority? Well, as I said, they, we have to revitalize the Palestinian Authority, which means giving the support that is necessary for good governance, um, understanding that on the issues that must be resolved as we think of a plan for the day after, it is about good governance, which will bring transparency and accountability to the people of Gaza and the West Bank. Um, it's also about what we need to do to recognize there must be some plan for security for the region, and I suspect as a, as a plan develops, it will take into account interim and then longer term. And finally, what we must do in terms of rebuilding uh, Gaza. Um, oh, hmm. boy. This isn't so, a whole makeover show, woman. So um, let's just do it all over again, says Kamala. Let's just go back to uh, pre-October 7th and hope it doesn't turn out the same, right? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Stephen Bucci, who served America for three decades as an Army Special Forces officer and top Pentagon official. He's a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies. Steve Bucci, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, you know, it's always great to be on the show with both of you. Can you uh, help us uh, decipher what Kamala Harris means by revitalizing the Palestinian Authority? Well, I'd, I'd love to say that I could, and I understand exactly what the vice president is trying to say, but I'm with you guys. I'm scratching my head going, what? Uh, you know, she she's talking about revitalizing the, the Palestinian Authority, but the Palestinian Authority, while they're not quite Hamas, they didn't do October 7th, but they've been cheerleading for it ever since. They've expressed nothing, uh, you know, that would really make them a more responsible partner in this process than clearly the Hamas, you know, government there in air quotes, uh, that that's in Gaza. So I guess to say, well, let's put the Palestinian Authority in charge of the whole thing, I guess that's better than just giving it back to Hamas to do, but not much. Do we have evidence that the Palestinian Authority was involved in the uh, planning of that terrorist attack? I mean, either th with a wink and a nod or willful blindness, which can also... Uh, can also uh, implicate culpability, or even more formally? Uh, I have not seen any intel or, or heard any big reports on that, other than they're cheerleading for it. You know, after the fact, they're, you know, they're shaking their fist and, you know, saying, you know, go brothers, we're behind you. But uh, I have not seen any specific intel that they were involved. The Palestinian Authority didn't get, get along with Hamas very well. Uh, they're competitors. And uh, so I don't think that the the guys in office were involved with the planning or anything else. Well, they yeah, they're, they're, it, they're, sure, but you know, yeah. Well, 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 well knowledge is is uh, you know makes you an accomplice. I mean, they may be uh, c competing for uh, top dog in the region, but they also have a common enemy. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not waving off and saying they're not without, or they're without sin. Uh, they're, you know, if you're cheerleading for that kind of horrific action, uh, that does not mark you as then a, a responsible partner for the future. Right. Uh, so I think what, what the vice president is saying is lunatic stuff. 
that is not a plan going forward. That is not something that's going to benefit either the Palestinian people or darn sure not Israel or the region. So uh, I, I think this they're hoping against hope uh, for something like this. So the pressure from uh, the you know the protests and all this other stuff that's going on will come off of them, and all of the. Muslim people around America who are saying, well, I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden, and he's helping Israel. Well, yeah, you know, presidents are supposed to make decisions. Uh, you know, I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden, but it's not because he's supporting Israel. Uh, it's because he's not supporting Israel strongly enough and condemning Hamas with even more fervency and without this parsing thing that Blinken is, is leading that you know, they're trying to straddle a line and, you know, continue to make this look like Israel is somehow to blame for all this. Uh, and if they would just be nicer to the Palestinians, this wouldn't be a problem. That is not the issue. The issue is the Palestinians, not just Hamas, frankly, but many of the Palestinians, particularly in Gaza, have made a conscious decision that they their only policy position is to exterminate Israel, period. Anything else falls short of their expectations. And as the leaders of Hamas have stated many times uh, since October 7th, they did this, they're proud of it, and they're going to do it again. Well, what do we do? I mean, the Houthi rebels launched a drone strike against the U.S. destroyer in the Red Sea, and that's just one of, what, 65 attacks on military bases and I know one uh, contra- American contractor was killed. We, we don't hear about this. It's, it's rarely on the news, if mentioned at all. Yeah, what happened to our partner in peace in Tehran? Yeah, right. Uh, you know, Tehran, are, I've had people from the region, other Shia governments, uh, when I was uh, still living in D.C. and meeting with ambassadors on a regular basis, you know, tell us during the first uh, negotiations to make a deal with Iran, saying, why in the world are you trying to negotiate with the Persians? said, nobody in our region ever negotiates with the Persians because you always lose negotiations with them. They're the most skillful and deceptive uh, negotiators in the entire Middle East, if not the world. They lie regularly. It's part of their, their modus operandi. We continue, the people in the progressive part of, of our government, continue to think, oh, no, we just talked to them, we can figure this out. They are not partners in anything. They are our adversaries, and they admit it fully. So you're right. They, they are sponsoring the Houthis. They're sponsoring uh, Hezbollah, Hamas. They're sponsoring the Syrian government. Come on. When is are the Biden administration players going to realize we have to take this fight to Iran, at least to their proxies, not just one attack a week or one counterattack a week, but with some force and regularity that makes the price to Iran higher than anything they've seen so far. Well, what what does that look? I mean, other than I know uh, congressional Republicans have moved to freeze the $6 billion that the Biden administration was going to turn over to the Iranians. That's still a drop in the bucket to what we're essentially providing in terms of uh, the financing that comes from the oil exports that are not being properly sanctioned. But 
Um, what is the what is the play in response to this uh, provocation, both to the United States and to uh, co- you know commercial shipping? The co- mm-hmm. commercial uh, commercial uh, ships were also attacked in addition to a U.S. warship. So, what's the what's the proper response to Iran? Well, uh, I personally think we should be hitting Iranian targets. I know that's a little much for some people. If if they and I don't think this administration has the stomach for it. But we should, at the very least, after those missiles fired by the Houthis, which are totally bought and paid for by Iran, we should be taking out all of those targets in Yemen that the Houthis are, are using to operate from and enable the Saudis to help us do it, which they would join in gladly because we're the ones who told them to stop fighting the Houthis before. We should be hitting all those targets around Syria that they have used to hit our people uh, in the area, in Syria and Iraq. Uh, And we should be looking specifically for targets where we know the IRGC advisory groups, their Spetsnaz equivalent, where they are stationed. So there is Iranian blood spilled, not necessarily in Iran, but in these other areas. If they're going to put their people out there, to help uh, enable these attacks by other folks, we should be taking out those other folks and the Iranian advisors that are, are guiding them. But that sounds like it's going to lead to the beginning of World War Three. No, it won't. That okay. if, if we attacked Iran directly, you know, you'd have a wider conflict. If we attack those proxy groups, no, we, it will not be. This is that would be even considered. Uh, proportional by people like the U.N. Uh, you know, if we get attacked 60 times, hitting one or two or three targets is not proportional. That is impotent. And, uh, you know, we could do a lot more than we're doing without coming anywhere close to the kind of threshold of widening the, uh, the conflict to bring in other nation states against us. Turning to uh, Eastern Europe, so uh, Ukraine has, again, restated its position that uh, the war doesn't end until they get uh, all their land back, which I, I understand. But um, even um, uh, I would characterize Richard Haas as, you know, certainly more adventurous with uh, American uh, blood and money than I would be. Even Richard Haas, former head of Council on Foreign Relations, is uh, suggested that it's time for Ukraine to cut a deal and for essentially for America to intercede to prompt a deal to be cut. And so I wonder about this, you know, with the passing of Henry Kissinger last week, you know, he uh, changed his position on Ukraine in with the in, to the extent of NATO admission. And essentially, as I understand Kissinger's position, it was end this war as soon as possible and admit Ukraine to the, to uh, to NATO as a deterrent on further Russian aggression. Um, what do you think about uh, what's coming from the foreign policy establishment in the in the form of both Richard Haas and the recently departed Henry Kissinger? Uh, well, you know, I, I agree with Richard, or I disagree with Richard Haas on a lot of things, and uh, I, it's really kind of daunting for any any scholar in the international relations field to disagree with Henry Kissinger on things, even what he's dead. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure we're quite ready to do that. 
Uh, I think uh, I'm not sure that Ukraine's ever going to get you know the entire Crimea back, every bit of its territory back. I don't know. Uh, I think that's looking tough for them. Uh, but I'm not sure it's quite the time to pull back yet. It might be six months from now, might be a year from now. I'm not really sure. But I think we could continue to support Ukraine for a while longer because otherwise Putin can spin this, at least in his own troubled head, that he has won and that could embolden to do more. I'm not sure that admitting Ukraine to, to NATO right now would have quite the deterrent effect that Dr. Kissinger is indicating, because I'm not sure if we did that and a week later uh, Russia uh, did an offensive that we would then say, okay, execute Article 5. I just don't think that will is there yet. I think there is still some will to uh, continue to support logistically and materially uh, and let Ukraine keep fighting for themselves. So I, I think that may be the way we go in the future, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Stephen Bucci served America for three decades as an Army Special Forces officer and top Pentagon official. He's a visiting fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies. Steve Bucci, thank you as always. Thanks for having me, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's morning answer on AM 560. The answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Weekday afternoons at 3 on AM 560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So both uh, Trump and DeSantis. We're in Iowa this weekend. Six weeks to go until the Iowa caucus. Trump was uh, rallying the faithful in Cedar Rapids. Ron DeSantis was knocking out his 99th county. Uh, so now he's had events in all 99 counties in Iowa, and he's uh, touting his ground game as the X factor that people don't see in the polling, combined with the support he has from some institutional uh, heavyweights in Iowa, the governor, Kim Reynolds, the uh, evangelical leader, Bob Vanderplatz. That's how he's going to close the gap and engineer a surprise victory come January 15th. And ultimately, Republican voters are going to have the choice of Donald Trump, which I think would make the election a referendum on him uh, and a lot of the issues that he's dealing with, or me, uh, and that will be a referendum on Biden's failures, on all the pro issues in the country that are affecting people, and I'll be able to stand for a positive vision going forward. We have a much better chance uh, if we're doing it with me as the candidate. I'd also be able to serve two terms, and I'm more likely to actually get a lot of this stuff done. But those are the choices, realistically, for Republican voters. And on that Meet the Press uh, interview yesterday, he said a couple of times, I'm going to win the Iowa caucus. I mean, what else is he going to say? But, I mean, well, he, he is expressing confidence, and there's no give, and he uh, seems like he's committed to uh, at, to, 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 to running uh, through Iowa, regardless if he wins or not. For a more on this, particularly that uh, market positioning, the question he offered, the framing he did there, with which is, if it's Trump, it's a referendum on Trump. 
we want it to be a referendum on the incumbent, which most most elections are. And if it's me, it's a referendum on Biden and all of his failures. Is that uh, persuasive or does that at least give people some pause for further reflection before they make their decisions in these early states? Well, let's put that question to our friend Scott McKay, fresh off of his uh, star turn, as I said, at uh, our Freedom <laughs> Summit last month. It's a Still big day. riding the high. No, it was a big day for him. It is. Big it day. Is. Coming out party for Scott McKay. <laughs> He's the publisher of The Hayride, contributing editor at The American Spectator, author of The Revivalist Manifesto, which has been targeted for elimination by CNN. We'll talk about that, too. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So, and I, you know, I will say this. It was a little cold for a coming out party, frankly. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, well, <laughs> not Louisiana anymore, kid. Uh, all right. Yeah, so well. um, what about uh, DeSantis uh, in Iowa and the ground game and the prospect of even having a surprise performance that, you know, a, a narrow second place finish, uh, much less winning? What about what are the prospects? Well, I, I will see. I, I don't I mean I don't think that anything DeSantis is doing is um, like I don't criticize any of it. I don't know how much of it makes a difference. You know, I mean, I, I, I still think that this is Donald Trump's Republican uh, electorate. I think that uh, DeSantis has a problem in that his people are Trump's people and they like Trump than DeSantis, at least for now. Um, and I don't know that that's going to change in six weeks. I, I don't I don't think he's dead in the water. I think he probably posts better numbers in Iowa than, you know, the 10 or 15 percent that, that some of these polls have him. But, you know, if Trump gets 50, it, I don't know that it matters. Yeah, but look at I mean, what you know what this reminds me of him hitting his 99th county in Iowa reminds me of Rick Santorum because he used to stop by the station here in a pickup right. truck and then drive to every county. And he won the Iowa caucus back in 2012, beating Mitt Romney. Right. Yeah, right. but t- 2012 was so different. I mean, this is such such an anomaly because you have a former president and, and, and a former president facing four indictments, no less. I, it's just I think it's difficult. I know Vander Plaats's record of endorsing winners in the Iowa caucus, but I just think this is just uh, a you know completely different kettle of fish. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I you know, I, I think what you're really doing, whether you want to admit it or not, or whether you're wittingly doing doing it or not, if you're Ron DeSantis, is you're running for 2028. You're you're making yourself the heir apparent, you know, after Trump is done, um, which is I think what Gavin Newsom is doing on the Democrat side, which is why they had that debate. You know, this this past weekend, I think, you know, you're setting yourself up as, OK, I'm going to do a couple more years uh, as the governor of Florida. And then I'm kind of the number one free agent on the American political scene in 2028. And, I, you know, realistically, that's what you're doing. I don't know whether that's what DeSantis's inner sanctum is doing uh, at the moment. Uh, I, you're not going to admit it publicly, at least until after you know such time as you drop out of the race. But. You know, I think that's what he's up to. And, you know, I'd much rather it be Ron DeSantis in 2028 than Nikki Haley. So if this is what he's up to, then I'm okay with it. I just, like, I just don't, I never have seen a path forward for DeSantis if Trump was going to be in the race. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you're just not going to choose Trump 2.0 over Trump 1.0 when people still think there's gas left in the tank for Trump 1.0. 
You know, uh, Trump 1.0 had a moment uh, this weekend after that debate you just mentioned between DeSantis and Newsom where he could have been magnanimous. And instead he chose to post uh, like uh, parody uh, parodies of DeSantis, Newsom, that debate and, and ridicule him or his campaign did. But, you know, he wears the jacket for it. And it just seems to me that. He could have done, you know, and maybe this is just me, you know, trying to bring people together as is my want. But um, he could have said, you know what, uh, great performance, but great performance by DeSantis. And the the difference between the red state model of governance and the socialist model of governance, as Gavin Newsom has demonstrated in California, is night and day. One is a successful model and the other is unsuccessful. And you have to lie pathologically to defend it, as Gavin Newsom did on that debate stage with Hannity and DeSantis. And he could have said, and he could have you know, said this, you know, I'm proud of Florida. I'm proud of what's gone on in the last four years. He could have even said, you know, thanks in large part to my support of DeSantis in 2018. It just seemed like a moment where he could stop parroting some of the lies of Gavin Newsom about Ron DeSantis's record and just rise above. And I think it probably would have served him well, would serve him well in Iowa, whether he needs it or not. Oh, I agree. Um, I, I, Trump has not behaved well toward DeSantis. Uh, and to some extent, when he unloaded on him, you know, I, I, there was a time when uh, he was bleeding a little bit of support to DeSantis. And, you know, when he unloaded on him, I think he, he foreclosed any more of that. But once you've done that, I think it's time to, you know, to, to be the bigger guy. And that's, that's not really Trump's thing, right? I mean, Trump is a guy that if, you know, if, it, if it's a fight, then he's got the brass knuckles and he's going to take you out. Um, and some of that is just, you know, that's a guy from Queens and that's the way it roll, you know, the way they roll. Um, and so I think that's baked into the cake. But, I mean, at some point, you know, this thing has got to be bigger than just you. And you re- it doesn't do anybody any good for him to completely tear DeSantis down. Um, for all time. And I, I think most Trump supporters, whether they're going to vote for DeSantis or not, don't want to see the guy destroyed as a political entity. So, you know, well, especially when you're saying, especially when you're saying, stop. especially when you're saying things about him, like his record on COVID or his uh, record on job creation or whatever. That right. he just, Trump's just said things that about the DeSantis record that are as untrue as the things that Gavin Newsom said on that de, uh, and during that debate on Thursday night. And that's it's just not right. Agreed. And he, he has an opportunity to correct it. And, uh, you know, it's just I it's it, it continues. I know it, it, what you said is true. That's not his nature. But, you know, um, the um, the skillful leader will find a way to get to that right place if he hasn't been in it to this point. Well, it's just to me, if I'm Trump, and, and maybe he doesn't want to do this because she's a woman, if I'm Trump, the one that I'm going to attack, if I'm going to attack anybody, is Haley. Because she represents the kind of republicanism that Donald Trump, you know, was a departure from, um, and that the party needs to get away from. And so that's a substantial critique. That's not... You know, I'm going to go after DeSantis and I'm going to make fun of his cowboy boots because he's got lips in them and all this kind of, like that's all of that stuff is high school garbage politics and and calling him Ron like the country. 
Yeah, I mean, the country is in dire straits. We don't need that stuff, especially when it really doesn't move the needle. I mean, Trump's over 50 in all of these polls of the Republican electorate. Tearing down people who are at 10 when you're over 50 is, like, that's dumb. Go after Democrats. Go, you know, let, let's talk about the future of the, of the country. And what this is is really, you know, this is we're talking about... Uh, uh, you know, beating up people, and it's really Trump talking about himself. And I don't mind him talking about himself, but let's let's do that in a way where we're actually helping the team. Well, and, yeah, yeah. you know, so I don't like it either. Yeah, the other thing too is, you know, that this whole um, I, I supported Ron DeSantis, and this is disloyal, um, and now he's desanctimonious, and Nikki Haley's a bird brain. That's what he's called her. Well, um, right. you know, that, that, that goes both ways. So, right, you gave Nikki Haley a job and raised her profile. You backed Ron DeSantis, and that helped him in the primary in 2018. But, I mean, so, so right. you, you backed him, and you said great things about him until he ran against you. And you had, you know, a love fest when Nikki Haley was walking out the door as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and had nothing but glowing things to say, and she was your personnel decision. So, you know, for if they're bird brains and 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 sanctimonious, well, those were your judgment calls back in the day, weren't they? Right. Well, and, you know, one of the critiques of Trump is that he doesn't hire well. Right. right. Um, so, you know, this this actually enforces that. Um, and, I, you know, I don't I don't ultimately I don't think it's a great look. I mean, look, you can you can deal with that criticism. All right, but there's no point in doing it when you're over 50 in these polls, right? I mean, it just, it just, I, it looks uncalculated. It looks like, you know, like he's just flying by the seat of his pants. Well, and a guy who spent four years as president, you know, should, I think he needs to be a little bit more strategic if he's going to carry the standard. Uh, I wanted to get to uh, the Revivalist Manifesto, your book. Uh, mm -hmm. It's got a, a foreword from. Uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson, and that has drawn the ire of, of CNN because this is some right. because now you're a white Christian nationalist threat to our democracy, too. Well, so in, in case your listeners don't know about this, I've been friends with Mike Johnson for well more than a decade. OK, like before he even got into politics, I, I was friends with him. So a year ago when I wrote the Revivalist Manifesto, you know, I asked him, hey, you know, here's this book that I've written. You want to write the forward? So he reads the book and he's like, oh, man, this is exactly the stuff I'm talking about in terms of what the future of the country needs to be and how, you know, how the Republican Party needs to change to, to, to make that happen. So he writes the forward. Um, and, you know, the book does OK. Um, all of a sudden, Johnson becomes speaker. And I'm like, you know, he wrote the forward for my book. It's probably relevant now. Um, and lo and behold, CNN you know, uses that book. Uh, as a means to attack Johnson. And I'll, you know, the interesting thing is Saturday, I checked the Amazon uh, page for the book. Lo and behold, it's number one in comparative politics. There you go. So, like, thank you, CNN. Uh, you know, Congratulations. I to, yeah, I had to email Andrew Kaczynski, who's the, the, the reporter for CNN that wrote this thing, and said, look, the next time you're down in Louisiana, let me know. I'll buy you dinner. You've made me a whole lot of money. Um, you know, and then I said, then I told him, I said, look, uh, no, he hasn't. But you know, I also said, 
by the way, I've got a new book out, Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama, and you'll hate that even more than you hate the Bible's manifesto. <laughs> and I really want you to attack that book as well and run it up to number one. Any relation um, to Ted? He hadn't responded, so we'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, the, the lesson from this is two things. Number one, do not fear the left trying to cancel you. Because that's actually a plus now. It is not a negative. These people are not effective. Um, and uh, the damage that they can do to you is much less than you think. So play over the top of them every chance that you get. Uh, and, you know, the second thing is none of this stuff is substantive. Substantive. All of the things that they wrote about the Revivalist Manifesto, okay, are like they didn't read the book. They did a keyword search on the book and said, oh, here's something homophobic, and here's something we can say is racist, and here's this and here's that. The book is about big things. It's not you know, a collection of insults against Democratic politicians, although if that's your thing, you will definitely find those in there. I mean, well, but they didn't read the book, and they didn't go for like any of the, the actual substantive things that they could have said about the book that from a left-wing perspective are you know, dangerous. They didn't do any of that. They just did a drive-by hit piece on the book. Wonderful. Congratulations. Uh, maybe you can get Andrew yeah. Krasinski to give you a jacket blurb for the new book. Uh, Scott I'll McC ask him. I think may, maybe you'll say yes. Scott McKay, publisher of The Hayride, contributing editor to the American Spectator, author of the newly minted number one, The Revivalist Manifesto. Pick it up. Make Andrew Krasinski <laughs> unhappy. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, when it comes to border security, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is doing more than just about anybody else, surely more than the federal government is doing. He's uh, constructing more uh, water wall. buoys. Oh, more wall. OK, Const that's good. Constructing more wall. He's put water buoys in the Rio Grande as a Loved it. Uh, hindrance. And uh, he also announced on uh, Maria Bartiroma show over the weekend that he's uh, moving legislation to essentially organize a statewide posse when it comes to combating illegal immigration. Take a listen. Uh, because of uh, the wall that we have built, because of these uh, razor wire barriers that we have built, uh, Texas is now no longer uh, the number one Ill illegal entry point. Uh, it is uh, the uh, Tucson sector, the San Diego sector, uh, and other states. Uh, and, and Texas is causing the cartels to have to alter uh, their routes, that uh, their, their routes uh, where people are coming across the border illegally. That said, Texas is having to step up and do even more uh, to make sure that we deny illegal entry into the state of Texas. And as a result, uh, Maria, in two weeks, I'll be signing a new law in the state of Texas uh, that will make it illegal for people to enter the state of Texas uh, from another country illegally and authorizing every peace officer in the state of Texas to arrest those people entering our country illegally. Interesting, making uh, trespassing in Texas a state-level offense 
essentially trying to get around uh, the issue of uh, relying on federal law and federal law enforcement. What do you think about that idea? Rather than uh, the push to end sort of the the titular uh, nature of Illinois being a sanctuary state, Chicago being a sanctuary city, pushing substantive legislation in that direction that scrambles law enforcement throughout the state. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. I think that's brilliant, but you got to get the Arizona governor along with that and the California governor, and I don't think Katie Hobbs or Gavin Newsom is going to join them in that fight. Well, that's uh, up to Katie Hobbs and Gavin Newsom. Greg Abbott's doing what he can do in the state uh, over which he is the executive, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, but he could be pushing the illegals to, oh, like, now that's going to happen in Texas, so we're going to go through it, Nogales and Tijuana. But, you know, good for him. Well, for doing um, it, something, at least. It would have some applicability in Illinois, it seems. For example, in 2021, a total of six Venezuelans were arrested for crimes in Chicago. Six. In 2023, 700 Venezuelans have been arrested in Chicago. Uh, and, of course, they're not being arrested because they're here illegally. They're here. No. They were arrested because they committed crimes. So they victimized somebody. And this is what Greg Abbott is moving to stem. And isn't that the responsibility of government at every level to provide for the public safety? And in normal states, like when uh, Maricopa County Sheriff uh, Joe Arpaio was there, they'd serve their sentence for the crime they committed and then immediately handed over to ICE when they left prison, and then they were deported. But we don't have that here. Well, and this is getting a a little bit um, more dicey than just domestic crime because we know from reports from the border the number of individuals from countries that are hostile to America who've entered and gotten away. We know that there have been uh, dozens of individuals that are suspected terrorists that have entered, and we don't know where they are. And we see this playing out in other countries right now. Uh, The uh, Eiffel Tower stabbing death, a 23-year-old tourist, uh, a Filipino tourist was murdered near the Eiffel Tower in France, in Paris, of course, and this was uh, done by someone who uh, affiliates with the Islamic State, ISIS. In uh, the Philippines, oh, uh, Marawa City terrorists threw a grenade at a Catholic mass, killing four, wounding 50. There were hundreds there was, of people at that mass, too. There was another Islamist terrorist attack on, uh, that was planned on a Christmas event foiled in Germany. There have been the stabbing attacks in Dublin, in rural France, where a teenager was murdered. So the, the point here is that you're starting to see uh, a resurgence of Islamist-related violence, even after 20 years of our blood and treasure being spent trying to dismantle these Islamo-fascist terrorist organizations. You still have the one-offs. Maybe the argument would be, as it was at the time, well, by... Uh, demonize, I mean, this is their, their language, by demonizing radical Islamists, you're just minting new extremists. Well, 
by opening the borders and not having any controls on who's coming in, what their intentions are, what their backgrounds are. Um, you're providing a glide path for people who have terrorism on their minds, potentially, to commit acts like we're seeing around the world in places that have sort of lost control of their country because of their multicultural ideology. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Dan and Amy, forget the part about having them turned over to ICE. We don't even prosecute them here in Chicago. Well, I understand. Oh, you, you mean oh, that. you mean prosecute them for domestic crimes, right? Well, well, just like I mean, we treat them like we treat the uh, indigenous population, right? So, so you know, safety act applies to them too, folks. There's our equal treatment under the law. Nobody gets prosecuted. One of my favorite uh, safety act when the when this one guy he was stealing mail from people in Lakeview and in Lincoln Park. And he was supposed to show up for his hearing. And guess what he was doing, Dan, when he was supposed to be at his hearing? He was stealing bank cards and people's mail in the same neighborhood. Yeah. Safety X working very well. Love it. You know, and it's 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 really difficult. Um, this uh, came over the transom over the weekend, too. Uh, Maloney, the prime minister in Italy, who mm-hmm. vowed to end illegal migration, she even promised a naval blockade. But the reporting is that in the past 12 months, 200,000 migrants from Africa stormed the small Italian island of Lampedusa, which has 6,000 residents. 200,000 migrants and a small island of 6,000 residents. And she essentially has done nothing. And a lot of Italians now see this as a betrayal. So, you know, we need to follow what people say when they're campaigning. And what they do if they're successful in securing office, particularly on this issue, and it's getting see, it's yeah. getting pretty dicey. You got to see the ba- that video too, though. Have you seen it where they're just storming? There's people on the beach, and then locals just freezing up and watching them run past them. And, and again, uh, not to belabor the point, but this is not a statement in opposition to legal migration. This is not a statement in opposition to immigrants from any particular country. It's a statement in support for the rule of law and for processes and for us to have some thresholds that need to be cleared to gain legal entry into this country. I I say again, it it was ironic last week that now there's a uh, processing center that's been set up for migrants arriving in Chicago uh, near the Maxwell Street Market. Uh, So it's almost like uh, Chicago's port of entry. So now after being beset you know, the city not being able to handle 21,000 people coming here from, you know, after crossing the border. 21,000 people in a city of 2.7 million as compared to 200,000 in a island of 6,000. I mean, can you imagine? But um, now they're trying to set up processes and penalties for people that don't follow the processes, sort of like what we should have at the border. But we're still a welcoming city, they tell us despite having a process uh, set up to try to provide some uh, form to the function. And if we try to do the same thing at the border, we're racist and xenophobes. Uh, Okay, sure. Uh, Catherine in DuPage, formerly of DuPage. 
Good morning, you too, and allow me to officially announce I have escaped from the state of Illinois to northwest Indiana, joining quite a few callers that I hear about. Yes. Um, a, a little aside that I'm uh, throwing in here, now and then I listen to this goofy station down the, the uh, band, and uh, they just, they're discussing lawsuits against Abbott for um, his shipping the illegals to Illinois and other states, and, and it reminds me how mentally insane these people are. Just it's a, it's just exasperating all around. Have a good week. Yeah, Thanks I mean, I was at Jeff. that press conference when Governor Pritzker's like, "We're going to try and get him on human trafficking." It's laughable. And Governor Newsom said the same thing two hours later. Interestingly, um, some more suburbs of Chicago oh. are taking action to prevent uh, their communities from falling prey to the same thing that Chicago has invited. So in addition to Rosemont now, we have Schaumburg and Elk Grove Village that are limiting uh, the hotel stays uh, for people who have not been in this country for more than a year to ensure that uh, migrants are not shipped, as Lori Lightfoot wanted to do, shipped from Chicago to the suburbs because this has been part of the conversation too, uh, and, of course, there's been money attached. We had the big fight in Joliet Township uh, yep. that Pritzker and Brandon Johnson and the politicians, hey, this we're a sanctuary state, not a sanctuary city. This is uh, everybody's problem. Chicago shouldn't bear the uh, a burden of this. Bur- it shouldn't bear the brunt of this burden. Burden is the term that BLM Brandon used. And so some, some suburbs, some suburban communities are actually paying attention and their antennae are up and they're taking action to try to prevent uh, the uh, what how what always happens in big cities and big metropolitan regions. The big cities try to socialize their problems, their burdens to the suburbs and some suburb some suburban communities are taking action, which is interesting to note. Yep. Elk Grove, Schaumburg, Rosemont. It's a what? A one thousand dollar a month tax if they stay longer than 60 days and they they voted unanimously in all three of those towns. So, Kevin in Austin, Texas. Uh, hey guys. Uh, good morning. So, I just want to. I, so, I grew up in Oak Park, and I live in Texas now, as you guys know, uh, just outside of Austin. And Abbott is this conservative on this issue because of the pressure of conservatives, and it also is advantageous for him to get more Republicans on the border. I think Abbott sending people up to Chicago is fantastic because now Chicago is a border state or uh, Illinois is a border state as well. And I think using that idea is, and then listening to what you're talking about this morning as far as some uh, the black community, as I, uh, as I talked about, getting upset and wanting to be Republican, it's advantageous for Republicans in Illinois to go out and try to cultivate that. I know it's not, you know, it's not going to change overnight, but at least there's some uh, rays of sunshine and things change. And it only happens when people who are locally involved start rattling the cage. Because I don't think, quite honestly, Abbott would be as conservative as he is if the conservative part of the Republicans in Texas didn't push him that way. Thanks for the call, Kevin. Uh, Tom Barrington. Hey, good morning, crew. Um can somebody just ask Pritzker and Newsom and these other guys, what about the first 6 million people that were trafficked? DeSantis and uh, Abbott, I believe, shipped, started shipping these people out in the early part of 23. What about the first 6 million that were flying in at 3 a.m. at O'Hare? 
and every other major airport and minor airport. Thanks, yeah. guys. Have a great day. Thanks, Tom. Mary Kay, Western Springs. Hi, I'm going to change my original point to um, even talking about shipping out the migrants to the suburbs. There's this building on Ogden um, that is, it, it was where the guy from LaGrange um, had kind of a cult thing where he trained people like the Duggar type people. There's, it's a beautiful building and um, it's empty. So, and it's in, it's in DuPage County. So I think it'd be great if you could, those DuPage people could, pressure their people to buy that building and get them housed there. It's beautiful. It's all brick. Switch it out, house it, you know, change it to condos or something. Buy it. They have so much money. Why not just buy it? And don't you think that's a good idea? Yeah, thanks for the call, Mary Kay. Oh, I, I got We talked about this before. All these uh, suburban communities that uh, bought into Sanctuary State and this uh, welcoming Propaganda, absolutely, give them a chance to live their values. One at Hinsdale, River Forest, Oak Park. And not just that church in Oak Park. Uh, Open your homes, Oak Park, Birkenstockers. Well, speaking of that, uh, several hundred migrants are going to be housed at the, you know, the former St. Bartholomew School and Parish. It's on the northwest side, so they're sending. That place is going to be repurposed to help migrants or illegals. Mark, man on the street. (laughs) Hey, it's Mark Watermiller, man on the street. Some good news and bad news. The Amundsen Park that was closed for two months and they kicked the kids out, it's going to reopen today to citizens. So it's that's some good news. But the bad news, and you reported on it the other day, uh, Mike Ditka's restaurant and the Tremont Hotel on Michigan and Chestnut is going to become a migrant center. So there's all kinds of stuff. Ho- wait, wait, homeless. I thought that, homeless. that was for the homeless. Homeless, homeless right, right now. It was migrants. Now it's convert, now they're doing homeless. you got to keep keep up they're moving different uh puzzle pieces around some are homeless shelters some are migrant shelters uh but you know it's all part of the gimme dad empire thanks for the call mark dan and amy chicago's morning answer there's only one radio show in chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean that show is this one chicago's morning answer on am 560 the answer if you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Even the normally straight-laced reporters for Bloomberg couldn't keep from guffawing at the Biden tweet over the weekend about inflation. Uh, take a listen. This is uh, Jonathan Farrow. The president out with a tweet yesterday. I have no idea who actually wrote this tweet, but it's got the president's name on it, so we should probably read it. This is what he says. Let me be clear to any corporation that hasn't brought their prices back down, even as inflation has come down. It's time to stop the price gouging. Give American consumers a break. Chorus on Wall Street, led by Jim Bianco. Apparently, he does not know the difference between prices rising at a slower pace and prices falling. Apparently he doesn't. No, he doesn't. <laughs> prices are increasing more slowly, so you should cut prices. Uh, right. And and also, not to mention, the idea that the President of the United States should be I- issuing some uh, nationwide directive to businesses big and small alike about their prices without any knowledge of the cost structure they face or any uh, concern, actually. It's really a remarkable moment, and it just, again, illustrates that binomics is synonymous with economic illiteracy. 
Joy Pullman joins us. She's the executive editor of The Federalist, federalist.com. Joy, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I noticed there's no call for um, uh, censorship of, uh, from the social media platforms of Biden's misinformation. And frankly, I wouldn't want it. I, I want his misinformation out there so we can discuss it. Maybe that's a lesson, too. That's a great point. I mean, the, the whole truth about the misinformation and disinformation mantra that we're being treated with lately, really what it means is clearing the way for the only messaging for people to hear to be the messaging of Democrats. And look, everyone's aware that politicians lie. Politicians on both sides, on all sides, they're always a bunch of liars. Um, you know, but what that means is what we really need to have is the historic American public square for people to have their ideas competing and people can hear both sides and perspectives of a view and they can uh, assess, you know, who has the better argument and the better facts. And so I think really the censorship is an admission that, you know, the, the people on the left really have no valid ideas, such as we're talking about in economics. We know inflation, you know, it's been proved by Nobel Prize winning economists to be caused by government spending more than they can take in in taxes. You know, inflation, if, if you're mad about inflation, you should be mad at the government spending and spending and spending and spending because then what it is forced to do in order to avoid economy tanking deficits is to inflate the money supply. And that, you know, causes all the price increases we've seen over the past couple of years. Wait, what so, price you know, increases? There's, there's people from there's... hearing information like that. Go ahead. Yeah, there's there's a, there's no price increases. I mean, you do do not believe your lying eyes at the uh, at, at the grocery store checkout. Uh, prices are declining, so you you need to you know take a store manager aside and tell them to cut the price of uh, foodstuffs. I mean, if you talk to anybody who runs any business, small, medium, big, you know, you know that they cannot hire people for anything, right? So. Their ability to provide things to people is dependent on them having workers at an affordable price for them to put products on the shelf. Um, you know, so, I mean, th but there's another hand of government there too, because government, you know, basically is making it possible for people to get, you know, have food and housing and everything else that they need without working for it. So that's the stated policy, you know, of Democrats. They are trying to cut all the work requirements out of every single means-tested welfare program in the country, and they're very, they've been successful since Obama at doing that. So, I mean, that's another aspect of where we have a completely sluggish economy, to, say, to put it in the nicest way. You know, part of that is due to Americans not wanting to work because so many people don't have to. That's um, you. Yeah, well, well, well what right. about I mean, Biden's not using Bidenomics anymore when he goes out on, you know, on these campaign trips. And he's also no one's buying any uh, build back better hats or T-shirts. So he's abandoned that. Well, I mean, the, the, right. The Biden administration, the White House really thought that they could do that thing of spinning around a negative term into a positive. But it didn't work for them. <laughs> they even did poll, you know, poll groups that found that using the Bidenomics phrase really turned people off. Because look, you know, as, as I pointed out in my article, Americans, you know, there's a lot of things that Americans are not allowed to know because of the censorship you referenced uh, in our, our opening. But Americans can every single time they go to the gas pump, every single time they look at their credit card bill, every time they look at their energy bill, they're at the grocery store. You know, we all know that just two years ago, prices were, you know, much, much lower than we're facing now. You know, I, I've been grocery shopping for my family for 20 years. I have all of the prices of my basic staples. I have, oh, this is a good, you know, sale price, buy an extra one. 
you know, that's been memorized and it's just in, in my mental routine for years. You know, looking at that, you know, just from two years ago, my grocery staples prices have increased 25 to 50 to 75 percent off of all of those prices I've memorized. And normal Americans, like, they're seeing the same thing, you know. So when you say Bidenomics to them, they think, wow, okay, so let's attach Biden's name to what I'm seeing and the inaffordability of everything right now. And it doesn't go well for the White House. Well, right. It's they they become punchlines. These taglines, they the, these these things they desire to be taglines become punchlines. Just like when you go to the gas pump, you still see some "I did that" stickers there, which which is jeering at the president, not supporting him. Build back better, Bidenomics. These have these all become rhetorical albatrosses. And I think if Democrats were more open to actually listening to voters and the American public you know, then they would be actually making some changes to their policies right now because obviously their program does not work. It is so obviously completely ineffective. But instead of triangulation like Bill Clinton did all of those years ago, instead of saying, wow, you know, we're listening to what you're saying because we feel like we have to earn your vote and making some legitimate changes that people can feel feel and see, you know, and so voters can tell that there's a difference, Instead, Democrats feel like they do not have to listen to the electorate anymore. They feel like there's certain groups of people who will always vote for them that they think are a majority of voters. So they can do anything they want, um, and, and they're always going to be in power. And, you know, and, and so that unchecked, you know, that re, the lack of checks and restraints on their economic program really puts us in a dangerous situation because even if, you know, if, the, if the voters do not consent to, do not like, the policies that are governing their lives, they cannot change them, Democrats think. And that puts the country in a really dangerous situation. Uh, you wrote about something with respect to transing your business. We were talking a little bit earlier in the program about uh, the um, uh, effort afoot by the Department of Agriculture to uh, not provide school lunches to any K-12 through school systems mm-hmm. that don't support the uh, gender ideology of the regime. Uh, well, that's also bleeding into federal grants for businesses. I assume things like small business administration loans as well. This is mm-hmm. where they're really tying the purse strings to um, to compliance with gender ideology. Right. So I'm actually writing a book out about this that's going to be out this coming June with Regnery Press. And so, but with the Biden so the Biden administration when it came into office, they were essentially handed a wish list from the activist group called the Human Rights Campaign. So that's a rabidly extremist sexual propaganda outfit headquartered in Washington, D.C. They basically said, from you know, here's what we want from the Biden administration. They put a wish list of about 100 things basically to enforce transgender ideology through every single aspect of federal power. So we've been seeing that. The Biden administration has been following that like it's a, that private organization's demands like it's a playbook for the administration. So we've come to the part in the administration where what they did now, you know, to continue following that blueprint is um, to require that every single federal uh, grant would follow, you know, people who, if you want to get a federal grant, you have to trans your bathrooms, let people cross-dress at work, you know, put men in with little girls in their private rooms and all the rest of it. Um, if you want to uh, apply for a federal grant. So that's a proposal the Biden administration just submitted to the federal register. And I think today is, uh, if I'm, I'm correct, I think today is the deadline for comments on that to the to the government. But basically what that's doing is using, I mean, the federal government has immense power. Federal grants and contracts 
are actually uh, more, they employ more people than the federal government does itself. It's a huge portion of the economy. So what we see is that these transgender activists basically want to use the immense power of the federal government to herd the entire country into their extremist ideology that puts women and children at risk. And not only does it do that, it's just a blatant defiance of reality. Men are not women. Men and women cannot become each other. And that's never going to change no matter how many surgeries they take to mutilate themselves. So this is a really, you know, communist kind of way of telling everyone that if you do not falsify reality and lie to everyone about the basic reality that men and women are different, you know, then you're not allowed to participate equally in economic exchange and in, in getting your own tax dollars back to you from federal grants. Uh, and uh, just to put a face on the human rights campaign for people who may have forgotten, uh, we got Sam Bright, uh, Sam Britton from the uh, human rights campaign. He was a, 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 a in the leadership there, the uh, the the man identifying as a woman who was in charge of our nuclear waste program until he couldn't stop stealing ladies' luggage at uh, airports. Yeah, that was a very exciting <laughs> incident. Yeah. You know, the funny thing about that. I mean, Talent. Probably not strange funny, fetish. It took, it took the federal government a number of weeks in order, you know, uh, weeks and weeks of pressure and, like, bad press from having this fe- this fellow under their employ before they actually put him on administrative leave. It's, by the way, almost impossible to file a federal official, federal right. employee. Right. But, I mean, I guess enough times on video stealing other people's luggage at uh, the... Uh, the carousels and, you know, even the Biden administration has to act. But, yeah, no, it's 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 top flight talent there. Not a clown show at all. Uh, Joy Pullman, executive editor of The Federalist, thefederalist.com. Joy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is The Morning Show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.